they were told that there was nothing wrong with the stuff, that they could eat a pound of it a day and still be safe. Well, that just on its face didn't make sense, right? From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, we bring a special presentation of Broken Ground. Broken Ground is a new podcast from the Southern Environmental Law Center. I spoke with the producer, Claudine Abade McElwain, in the studio. Claudine, this is the first episode of your series on environmental issues in the South. Tell me about it. So this is a podcast that was uh, born out of the fact that I work with these amazing attorneys who are some of the best environmental lawyers we have in the South. And when they were starting to put their cases together and I had the opportunity to watch them do this, I could just see all of this information, witness testimony, um, expert affidavits. I mean, that's how they see it. For me, I just saw stories all around me. So we decided to tell um, these stories. And um, this first episode is our you know, first opportunity to kind of focus in on an issue that's very important to our organization, coal ash and the cleanup of coal ash in the South, and, and why it does need to be cleaned up. You say in the episode that, like me, you had never really thought about or known much about coal ash. What do you understand now? What I know now is that it's a toxic substance that leaks arsenic um, and all kinds of other heavy metals into our waters. Uh, the reason for that is that it's stored in pits near our waterways mostly, um, and those pits are often unlined, and so leaking and seeping into our water. This stuff is so toxic that the workers have had incredible, sometimes fatal, consequences from all the toxins. And that is what this episode is about. It's mainly about what the fallout was of that Kingston spill so that um, we see what the real effects are, the people who have to actually bear the brunt of these environmental disasters. Who are they and what happens? And I think it's equal parts about them and about the uh, reporter, Jamie Satterfield, who worked so tirelessly to bring this story out into the light. She's a remarkable woman and captivating investigative journalist. Yeah, and since we recorded this interview, she has received a Scripps Award for her work on this story in particular. What do you think Broken Ground can do as a podcast series on the environment? You know, I think that um, we're seeing local news diminish across the country. And in terms of environmental news coverage, I mean, local news is where the stories are told. By the time an environmental story in a small town reaches a national level, at that point, we're at disaster stage. We're at catastrophe. And that stage is too late. So what I'm hoping is that I think, you know, we have great environmental reporters around this country digging in to issues, particularly right now. Uh, and I think that this podcast can also help to fill that area of much needed storytelling of what's happening so that people are getting this information, but also hearing the stories of um, the real people who are on the front lines, who are um, bearing the brunt of some of these environmental problems, but also picking up the baton and and running with it. Some unexpected environmentalists, I would that say. Was, that was what was so moving to me about your first episode. It felt like a story that was about how real people are navigating environmental disaster. 
I mean, I think that's one of the amazing thing about the people that we've talked to in this season. Um, they are Southerners who, you know, love their land, care about where they live, but maybe were not environmentalists until something reached their doorstep. And, you know, I don't even think I need to call them environmentalists. I think they're just citizens who saw a problem and want to do the right thing um, or were touched by an issue and it changed their mind or made them stand up and go and fight to make sure that their water is clean, that their air is healthy. We're really excited to share this with listeners on With Good Reason. Where can people find the series after this episode? So you can find uh, the series Broken Ground on all of the regular podcast listening platforms that you prefer. And we'll have four episodes this season. And next season, we'll see where we go. Can you share what's in the works? Um, You know, what I can say is that this season really focuses on energy issues. It's kind of taken this, you know, Charles Dickens approach of the ghosts of the past, present, and future. And so I hope in this season you'll see we start with some dirty legacy past issues and ghosts that we have to deal with, some present-day issues where we can be making the right decisions now, and what does our future look like, and what are the good decisions that we can make for our future. People in the South are waking up to this, this problem and hopefully dealing with it head on. And without further ado, here's Broken Ground. I woke up to the the awfulest noise and sound that uh, I can imagine. Millions of tons of ash and sludge came pouring out. The spill was a hundred times larger than the Exxon Valdez. The prevailing myth is that it's Arsenic levels more than 100 times the acceptable amount. In Kingston, Tennessee, efforts to clean up a giant spill of coal ash are going day and night. There is nothing to warn these workers. There's not signs, there's not pamphlets, there's nothing. The eyes was burning, the headaches, the coughing up of that jelly junk. And now they're sick and dying, and no one will take responsibility for it. This is Broken Ground, a podcast about environmental stories in the South and the people unearthing them. I'm Claudine Abade McElwain, and before I jumped headfirst into environmental issues, I was a producer and editor for more than a decade at NPR. I worked on really tight deadlines, but the kind of information I dig into now can take months and sometimes years to unravel. In this episode, we go digging for the story of coal ash. That's the toxic substance left over when coal is burned to make electricity. In America, we make about 130 million tons of it a year. It's enough to fill a million train cars. If you've never thought about coal ash or where it ends up, you're not alone. I never had. And I don't think that the Copeland family ever thought about it either. And they lived right across the water from a coal-fired power plant in Kingston, Tennessee. That plant was run by the Tennessee Valley Authority. They're better known as TVA and it was making tons of coal ash every day. You think that they know what they're doing and that uh, everything's safe, that they're keeping an eye on it. That's Chris Copeland in a 2008 interview. He grew up fishing, swimming, playing on the Swan Pond, right there next to the coal-fired power plant. 
he planned on living there the rest of his life, raising his two daughters there, growing old there. And then everything changed three days before Christmas in 2008. I woke up to the, the awfulest noise and sound that uh, I can imagine. I could hear crashing and popping, the uh, noise, the wind was incredible. Uh, it seemed like it generated its own wind. I mean, imagine that. It's the middle of the night, the power's out. So Chris Copeland throws on his clothes and he scrambles outside. Didn't have any lights back there, so I got in the car and drove in the backyard and shined the headlights in the backyard. And it was just unbelievable. I mean, clumps of earth as big as our house were in the, in the cove behind us. Those clumps of earth that he's describing are actually huge mounds of coal ash. They'd come to be known as ash bergs. But he calls 911 and says there's a mudslide. From County 911. Yes, uh, I'm over at Swan Pond and there's a, a heck of a mudslide or something that came through our backyard. I mean, there is unbelievable. The whole, we live on a cove back here and it is full of mud. Other neighbors start calling. They're confused. They don't know what's going on. Finally, emergency responders head to the scene. All units responding to Swan Pond Circle. Seems to be an officer advising the dikes have fallen, the dikes have fallen. She's saying the dikes have fallen. What she means is that a six-story dirt wall that's meant to keep the coal ash sludge on the power plant property and out of the river has given way. I want to stop here for a minute and ask an obvious question that I asked when I first learned about coal ash ponds. Why would utility companies tempt fate by putting coal ash on the edge of a river? It seems like a pretty dangerous thing to do. But when I learned more about power plants, I understood why. Power plants are built near water because they need lots of it to operate. River water is often key to keeping a power plant cool. Coal ash, a byproduct of burning coal, accumulates quickly. And shipping it to a landfill costs more than keeping it on site. So most power plant operators choose to leave it where it is and instead store the coal ash in open-air, water-filled dirt pits. It's called wet storage. And to this day, hundreds of power plants across the country do this. And that was the same method used at the Kingston Fossil Plant. Though the ash pond at Kingston had passed a TVA inspection seven months earlier, the 60-foot dirt wall gave way overnight. It released nearly 50 years' worth of coal ash into the Emory and Clinch rivers. The next day, everyone would see just how epic of a disaster it was, and the news coverage would demonstrate that. Millions of tons of ash and sludge came pouring out when a dike at a coal plant gave way this week. An unnatural disaster along the Clinch River, a spill of sludge. Releasing a tidal wave of coal sludge into the area. The ash coats a half mile square, sometimes as deep as 10 or 12 feet. The spill was 100 times larger than the Exxon Valdez, and it was all coal ash. Relatively speaking, the homeowners were lucky. A dozen homes were swamped by ash and three were destroyed, but no one was injured or killed. They were lucky that it was the middle of the night in winter. Had it been summer, a nice day when people might have been playing in the pond, things could have gone so differently. As this disaster unfolds, people across the country, like the people in Kingston, are learning what coal ash is. They're learning that EPA didn't regulate this hazardous waste, even though as far back as 1980, Congress was asking the agency if it should. NPR reporter Elizabeth Shogren interviewed Matt Hale, 
the head of the EPA's solid waste office, about this lack of oversight. So basically, EPA has been studying this problem for 28 years, is that right? That's right, yeah. Why has it taken so long? There's been a considerable amount of technical work. Simply, the process has required this amount of time. Environmentalists like Eric Schaefer, head of the Environmental Integrity Project, call BS on all of this. The prevailing myth is that it's safe. We have EPA sort of buying into that for many years and really refusing to regulate this material for what it is, which is highly toxic ash that leaches metals like arsenic and cadmium and mercury into drinking water and into rivers and creeks. And so now, as homeowners in Kingston are actually learning what's in the coal ash, they are understandably starting to freak out. They're hearing that it has things in it like mercury, cadmium, chromium, selenium, aluminum, antimony, barium, boron, chlorine, cobalt, manganese, nickel, thallium, and vanadium. Heavy metals like these, even trace amounts, lead to health problems, which is why it's shocking when TVA's Anda Ray, who was their environmental executive at the time, goes on to 60 Minutes and basically equates coal ash to dirt. I'd say that the constituents, the things that are in the coal ash, are the same things that are naturally occurring in soil and rock. So is it like dirt? Would you say that? Would you say that sentence? That stuff is like dirt? That's, that ash material is higher than dirt in two areas, and that is arsenic and thallium. Let's talk about arsenic and thallium. Arsenic causes skin lesions and cancer. It's linked to heart disease and diabetes. Thallium can cause problems with the nervous system, headaches, fatigue, sleep disorders. People in Kingston are starting to talk. What would happen if this stuff got into their drinking water? So four days after the spill, with the Tennessee Valley Authority's PR machine up and running, spokesman John Moulton assures residents. Our sampling uh, has determined that there's been no indication that the water would not meet drinking water standards. I'm not sure what he meant by no indication, but soon officials were flip-flopping from day to day as to whether the local water was safe to drink. Understandably, Kingston residents were becoming skeptical. Then the mayor of Kingston, Troy Beats, decides he's going to set his community's mind at ease during a press conference by pulling a little stunt. This is a cup of Kingston City water that came from my house and out of my tap, and I just want to drink it for you right here. And I'm going to be fine. Mayor Beats hoped his city would bounce back quickly, and TVA implied it would. Any estimate as to how long mm-hmm. it would take to clean all this up? They are being fairly optimistic at this point. They're hoping to have the entire area cleaned up within six weeks. They have if you look at the photos from the time of the spill, six weeks is insane. Six weeks was never going to happen. It doesn't matter how many dump trucks they had working around the clock. The stuff was deep, and it was everywhere. In the end, it didn't take weeks or even months. It took years, six years, before the EPA declared that the job was good enough. And though much of the coal ash was shipped to landfills in Alabama and Georgia, TVA said 500,000 tons was too hard to remove from the river. And so it's still there today. As for the cost of the six years of cleanup, $1.7 billion, which utility customers in Tennessee are still paying for. But there are people who had to pay a much higher price. Earlier we said that people in Kingston were so lucky no one died because of this coal ash spill. Well, that's no longer true. 
there's going to be a lot of widows, a lot of widowers. It doesn't matter what I report, and it doesn't matter what happens in this case. There's going to be a lot of people whose families are just going to suffer. That's Jamie Satterfield. She's an award-winning investigative reporter for the Knoxville News Sentinel, and she's been covering the story of the workers who cleaned up the Kingston coal ash spill. When the spill first happened, there was a crush of media. There was a crush of environmental groups. All of the focus was on the community, the impact on the community. No one, including my own news organization, cast a glance over at the workers. So we're writing stories that this stuff might be terribly dangerous. It might be, you know, um, but nobody is going, why aren't those workers in suits? You know, why is the EPA guys all tie-backed out and the workers aren't? Nobody questioned that. They didn't have any protective gear when they were working out there? No, none at all. I mean, you know, your basic hard hat, your, you know, shiny vest and blue jeans and T-shirts. That's what they were working in. Directly after the December spill, EPA workers show up in their Tyvek hazmat suits to assess the damage. They do some testing, and they become concerned for the safety of workers, who are going to be knee-deep in coal ash day after day. But by February, the EPA turns the cleanup job over to TVA. And TVA brings on a contractor called Jacobs Engineering to help. And now that Jacobs was managing the coal ash removal, the workers' safety was in their hands. But Jamie says the workers were kept in the dark. They were never told that it was dangerous. They were told that there was nothing wrong with the stuff, that they could eat a pound of it a day and still be safe. Well, that just on its face didn't make sense, right? Because what I had discovered is the American Coal Ash Association doesn't even make that kind of claim. I thought, surely, to goodness, a responsible government contractor is not going to lie in that fashion. When you first started looking into the cases of these workers, were you skeptical? Yes, I was skeptical. And of course, as an investigative reporter, I always go into an investigation um, with this idea that this is probably not true. Um, it just makes me look a little harder at things. And um, so I was skeptical. I needed proof. So by the third interview, um, I got it. Uh, a worker had secretly videoed um, conversations with supervisors out on that site uh, in which the supervisors could be heard very clearly telling them it, that their breathing problems were pollen, not the ash, that this stuff was safe. I don't think it's the ash because I've got the same allergy problems that I've never had before, and I talked to my doctor and it's not the ash. It's the pollen this year. is horrible. It's the pollen. Give it a couple more weeks, take an Allegra or two. There were secret recordings about them being told that if they pressed this issue, if they demanded protective gear, they would lose their jobs. You think I'd hang myself? Uh, yeah. And bear in mind, this is good money for these people. These are working people, and this is good money. TVA pays well. Don't. Don't what? Don't hang yourself with your own Once I got those videos, I was off to the races. Okay, let's pause for a second here. Maybe at this point you're thinking like I am. Why wouldn't a company do something, even something minimal like a face mask, to keep workers safe and keep the company from getting sued? Here's what Jamie thinks is going on. It was a PR nightmare. 
So the last thing you want is for your community out there, and you're telling them everything's safe, we're keeping you safe, we're checking your water, we're, we're doing all these things, don't worry. How worrisome it would have been for the community if they look over at the site and they see hundreds of workers outfitted in Tyvek suits, right? And respirators and this scary-looking gear. It would look as if this stuff was really dangerous. So they did not want to scare the community. And, and as a result, they knowingly threatened the lives of these workers. Later, investigations would show that in a meeting with the EPA five months after the cleanup started, Jacobs Engineering insisted that their testing showed hazmat gear was not necessary to do this work. EPA did two things at that meeting. One, they made no requirement whatsoever for protective gear for these workers, so they laid down on that issue. They gave up on that issue. And the other thing that they did, EPA did, was to cave to TVA, and they actually removed wording from signs around this site meant to warn the public. They actually had them remove the words hazardous waste. So by May 2009, there is nothing to warn these workers. There's not signs, there's not pamphlets, there's nothing. Jamie began investigating all this in 2016, two years after the cleanup ended. She started finding one worker after another who was suffering from a variety of health problems. Workers like Jeff Brewer, who was perfectly healthy when he started working on site. Here he is in a deposition describing the symptoms he says he began experiencing from the coal ash. The eyes was burning, the headaches, the coughing up of that jelly junk, uh, the swelling of my legs, the rashes of that stuff on my body, uh, the breathing. And Jamie says there are hundreds of cleanup workers who are having the same symptoms. John Cox developed a debilitating cough that he couldn't shake. And after months and months and rounds of antibiotics, his doctor finally sent him to a specialist. And his first question was, well, you wear a respirator, don't you? And I looked at him and said, no, they say we don't need one, that this won't hurt us. And he's like, all this will kill you. Eventually, John Cox quit, but hundreds of his co-workers stayed on, working 12 to 15 hours a day, six to seven days a week, until the end of the cleanup. So since then, we now have over 200 workers who are sick with either chronic or fatal conditions, and I have over 30 who are dead. Just now you said I have over 30 who are dead, and I've heard you in the past refer in other interviews to workers you've reported on as my coal ash workers. Has this story become personal for you? Oh, absolutely. You know, I'd... give me just a second. Um, every time I sit down with these people, it is so wrong. What happened to them? They showed up for work and they trusted their employers. And now they're sick and dying, and no one will take responsibility for it. They were expendable. Nobody really paid attention or cared about them. But as you can hear, Jamie cared about them, and she told me this story. 
She had just finished interviewing a man whose wife had developed brain cancer and actually died while working as a flagger at the cleanup site. Jamie left that interview to meet a new couple who had just learned about the lawsuit from one of her articles. The husband had worked on the cleanup site, too. And he had been having some symptoms, but they didn't connect it to the work, right? So I go out there, and I'm in their living room, and he was telling me about some of the symptoms he was having. And it was exactly like the lady who died. And so I've never done this in my career. I looked over, I had a a photographer with me, and I had, um, I I said, I'm going to let him video you, so keep talking. And I pulled his wife aside, and I said, has he been tested um, for neurological conditions? And she said, no. And, you know, you could see this fright on her face. And I said, get him tested. Get him tested. And I cried all the way home. Um... And he has been. He's been tested. He's now part of this lawsuit, and he is now officially dying. The lawsuit was brought against Jacobs Engineering by the workers, many of whom are sick with chronic illnesses like cancer, congestive heart failure, and pulmonary disease, all of which are consistent with heavy metal poisoning. In November of 2018, a jury ruled in favor of the workers, who can now seek damages from the firm. What did you know of coal ash before you started looking into these cases? You know, I knew absolutely nothing about coal ash. My daddy was a coal miner. But the danger of the ash itself, um, what was in the ash, I had, I had no idea when I started this project. Had you thought about um, environmental issues before you started working on this particular case? You know, I have to confess, I'm I'm pretty much a, a red meat Republican. You know, I mean, it's just the truth. And, and environmental stuff was just not something I paid a great deal of attention to. That's as honest as I can be about it. But uh, I would like people who are like me, you know, that are just average working people. And you think, eh, the environment, you know, they're just tree huggers, that kind of thing. You know, it really is incumbent upon us Um, to make sure that coal ash is regulated for what it is, which is a hazardous waste in which no worker ought to to be toiling without protective gear. It should not be stored in a haphazard manner. It should be treated as the dangerous, toxic substance that it is. While the 2008 spill at TVA's Kingston, Tennessee plant became a sort of poster child for the havoc wreaked by coal ash, it still wasn't enough to prompt the EPA to change its storage rules, or even to officially declare coal ash a hazardous substance. In fact, six years later, when another spill occurred, this time in North Carolina, the regulations were still only in development. Federal rules were finally official in 2015, but are now being rolled back by the Trump administration. Broken Ground is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center. The show is produced by Emily Richardson Lorente, Nina Ernest, Jenny Daly, and the host, Claudine Abade McElwain. The theme music was written by Eric Knutson, and the archival sound used in the episode was found at the Knoxville News Sentinel, an NPR. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. 
it was three months after I got there, and I got a call from an advocate from outside the community who said, do you know what's going on in your backyard, in your neighborhood? Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. I'm Sarah McConnell, and the voice you just heard was Jason Sawyer. He's a professor of social work at Norfolk State University. And she said that one of the landfills in the neighborhood had been depositing coal ash into one of the landfills there. When he moved to a new neighborhood outside of Richmond, Virginia in 2010, Jason found himself in the middle of a dumping ground. Since that time, he's been reflecting on his community's struggle against the dumping of coal ash and how the fight to remove the coal ash pile reflects larger issues of environmental injustice. This was a, this was a neighborhood where there were four landfills within a two-mile radius. This particular landfill was about a half a mile from the community center itself. Just dumping a little coal ash here and there? Uh, no, this was 85,000 cubic yards of coal ash, and they were storing it on the site at the time. What it looked like was a huge mound of black ash and soot that was higher than the landfill itself. How were they going to use it? They were going to layer it with debris? Yes. There's two different types of landfills. One is a municipal solid waste landfill, like the trash that you have in your house goes into that type of landfill. The particular type of landfill that this landfill was, was a construction and demolition debris landfill, which was demolition debris from construction sites. And it doesn't have a smell. But what they were doing is they were putting the waste into the landfill and then they were layering it with the coal ash mixed with soil. So when, when they were approached about what they were doing, they said, we're not depositing it in the landfill as waste. We're using it as structural fill. Where does coal ash come from? Coal ash is the waste that's created from coal after it's been burned in power plants. Is it hard to get rid of? Um, yes, because what we're seeing right now is policy hasn't really caught up to what uh, really needs to happen with this. There's issues all over the country with this kind of waste seeping into their water systems and into their soil. How toxic is it? What's in it? It's very toxic. It's got lead. It's got cadmium. It's got chromium. It's got arsenic. Uh, it's known to cause neurological diseases. It's known to cause cancer. It's known to cause heart disease, developmental disabilities. It's really bad stuff, particularly when it starts seeping into the water system. And this was just a couple years after there'd been a national story about a huge break in a pond that was holding coal ash sludge in Tennessee. Yes, it, yes. A I read that a billion gallons spilled all over everywhere. Absolutely, and it contaminated both of the rivers that were there, and it affected 300 acres. People lost their homes. So, And this is not something that's regularly talked about in the, in the media. The Tennessee problem was coal ash mixed with water and held in a pond to contain it. Mm -hmm. This was just a big pile of dusty coal ash residue, right? Right, yes. Is that just as bad? It can be because what it does is it gets into the air. 
And the communities that are generally affected by this are low-income communities, often communities of color or rural white communities. And the first thing that we were actually concerned about was the air quality. So we originally called the Department of Environmental Quality to talk about the air quality piece of it and then realized that it could actually seep into the water system. And is that a typical big problem, coal ash on the ground seeping into the water supply? Well, localities are also able to get water permits to deposit the wastewater into rivers. Uh, And the Virginia legislature allowed one of the large power companies here in Virginia to do that uh, in in the James River. So, What does that mean? You can just dump water, coal ash-laden water into the river? It is treated. It's treated coal ash-laden water into the river, but advocates don't necessarily trust the fact that they're able to to treat the water in a way that that makes it um, environmentally sound because it's known to kill fish and wildlife. Did the residents of Fulton, when you told them about the coal ash pile, were they alarmed? Folks were very alarmed, and they responded in a way with lots of questions. One woman in particular, I remember, talked about how her her child had started having issues with skin rashes and asthma. There was also a woman who ended up getting tested for having lead in her system. She does a lot of gardening, and she also um, had been drinking tap water. So she was very concerned about the quality of the water and got um, a treatment through her doctor to get to get some of those toxins flushed out of her system because she had high levels of lead in her body and high levels of of some other chemicals, too, that were she believed were caused from the coal ash. But there were also factories um, that were now long dormant that had been smelting factories and others Mm -hmm. that may have left contaminants. In the yeah, ground? absolutely. Yes, that's true. So these community problems aren't isolated, right? And the community has a history already. This was one of the urban centers, well, just outside the urban centers of Richmond during the Industrial Revolution. So there were smelting factories there. The ground is contaminated. When we do community gardens, we had to have raised beds because of how contaminated the ground is there. So we don't want to leave out the fact that this part of the city was one that that has struggled with um, environmental justice issues before. If I can scoot ahead to what became of the mountain of coal ash, were you successful? Was the community successful in getting it removed? Yes. We were able to, to negotiate with the landfill to get the coal ash taken off the site. And the community was with us every step of the way. So that was a huge success for us. The downside of it was actually that this coal ash went to another landfill 25 miles away in in a community that was not as engaged, 25 miles south of the city of Richmond, in a little place called Chester, Virginia. When the flint lead in the water problem happened, did it immediately make you think about your experience with Fulton? It did. It resonated. It was very familiar to me. Of course, Flint wasn't a coal ash problem. It was lead in the pipes leaching Mm -hmm. into the drinking water. Right, but it also had to do with commodities and money and trying to save money. The reason why they switched their water source is because they wanted to save money, right? And the reason why the East End Landfill Company was willing to put this toxic substance in their landfill is because they got money for it. These companies need a way to to dispose of these chemicals, right? Garbage is a commodity, right? Waste is a commodity. 
And what was the lesson you drew from this? Was it poor communities are often the path of least resistance? Um, it, it was a little bit different than that. I think that my main lessons were that when community people are able to build long-term relationships with each other and take care of those relationships, they can begin to mobilize the gifts and talents that they have to be able to say, not in my community. That's not going to happen. And that's what happened in Fulton. One of the things that I learned was that everything that a community really needs to survive and to thrive, they generally already have. There are people who have real talents and gifts in those communities. There are associations of people and social networks of people in those communities who, who can build power. The relationship piece is really where it starts. Jason Sawyer, thank you for talking with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you so much, Sarah. I'm very grateful for this opportunity. Jason Sawyer is a professor of social work at Norfolk State University. Coming up next, historians and biologists working together to preserve a vanishing tree. drilling into a tree The samples allow them to study the rings of living trees. Some contain hundreds of years of history. And for Rob Atkinson, professor of biology at Christopher Newport University, that history is key to saving this threatened species, the Atlantic white cedar. The Atlantic white cedar is important to John Hallman, too. John works as a cooper or barrel maker at Colonial Williamsburg. During the 17th and 18th centuries, wood from the Atlantic white cedar was used in homes from New England to North Carolina. Now there are very few Atlantic white cedars left. Rob describes some of what the early settlers had noticed about the Atlantic white cedars. Well, actually, when the very first colonists arrived in April of 1607, they encountered cedar at the mouth of Chesapeake Bay. And it's not clear whether that was the northern edge of the Great Dismal Swamp, which is in southeastern Virginia, or maybe it was the much more common eastern red cedar that we find on well-drained sites everywhere. What did they describe seeing? How large were these trees? Well, the description was rather brief because they were pretty quickly fired upon with arrows but um, they did describe cedar along with uh, pine and maybe one or two other species just very briefly. John, you are a cooper making the wooden casks and barrels for Colonial Williamsburg. Does Colonial Williamsburg use this Atlantic white cedar for shingles? They do, partly because it's so lightweight, so it doesn't impose a whole lot of structural burden on the building when you're putting it up on the roof. How widespread and vast were these stands of Atlantic white cedars when the colonists first arrived? And what remains today? We have an actual photograph of a gentleman with an axe on his shoulder, and he's clearly uh, a big fellow. 
but the trees beside him make him look like a child. And it is the densest growing forest in North America. The distance from one tree to its neighbor is the shortest distance for all of our native forest types. And so you just have to imagine you're, you're walking into a dense, woody cathedral. So are there still stands of Atlantic white cedars? There are very small stands, um, not much larger than a house. And, um, and of course, it hardly mimics the original because there were just thousands of acres of just Atlantic white cedar shoulder to shoulder that it would have taken you days to walk through. How old can an Atlantic white cedar grow to be? We thought that Atlantic white cedar did not live to be very old because it was such a popular tree to harvest and the people who used to harvest it are all aged out because, you know, this harvesting began in the 1600s. So there was the assumption that cedar was not a long-lived species. And then a Stockton University professor was called into a site where there was excavation in New Jersey, and um, Dr. Zimmerman uh, is a professor, and he actually found 600 years of recognizable tree rings in one Atlantic white cedar stump, and many years were missing due to damage. So it was more than 600 years old. And our oldest trees that we've sampled in our dendroecology work only date back 80 years. So clearly, they were much longer loved in the past when we left them alone. A lot of us see scrub cedars here and there on various tracts of land. How do we know when we have an Atlantic white cedar? What's the difference? Well, our common native eastern red cedar, which is found in most states in the country, has very prickly branches. And, uh, and the branches of Atlantic white cedar are quite soft. Also, the needles are sort of rounded on eastern red cedar and flattened on Atlantic white cedar. So once you get up close, it's not hard to tell at all. George Washington and others from the founding era apparently already could see the destruction of some of these stands of white cedars. Is that true? Pierre Kalm was a Swedish botanist who was traveling in the Northeast in the mid-1700s. And his concern was Atlantic white cedar was being harvested without replacement and that there was no suitable substitute for the lightweight, long-lasting Atlantic white cedar shingles. And he thought, he wrote, in fact, in his diary that every home in New England would have to be torn down and rebuilt so the walls would be thick enough to support whatever sort of roofing material replaced Atlantic white cedar. There really aren't many recorded concerns for endangered species in that era. And his motivation was, of course, economics for fear of a housing crisis with everyone rebuilding their home. And apparently, uh, though I can't point to a document, um, it appears that George Washington and his investors were able to meet that demand. So what would happen was his enslaved troops of shingle getters living somewhat autonomously in the Great Dismal Swamp were able to float the shingles out to the western edge of the Great Dismal Swamp and use horses and mules and wagons to cart 
the shingles to Suffolk, Virginia, which is on James River near Chesapeake Bay and the Atlantic Ocean. So that was well suited for shipping, and it would go mostly north because much of the south still had uh, dense stands. John, you use very little of the white cedar, but some of it now. Did colonial Williamsburg residents of Washington's era use more white cedar in various building projects? I think that goes back to the the discussion about concerns about shortage of material or not. As Rob mentioned, in New England, where there wasn't as much of the white cedar to begin with, it could quickly be seen as a, a diminishing resource. And, and so I can see the concern there about running out of it for making shingles, whereas with it being more readily available in the bigger stands here in the South, it became possible to, to export it. But as we move through the 18th century, as more and more land is cleared, not just from the standpoint of cutting down cedar to to make shingles to ship up to New England or for local use, but also just clearing land for agricultural products, the the landscape changed dramatically in a lot of places. I think one of the reasons that the stand of cedar in the Great Dismal Swamp held on for so long is because of the, the landscape of the swamp itself, the difficulty of moving into it and just clear cutting, which is what happened to the landscape more broadly. Uh, So by the time we got to, say, the 1760s or the 1770s, a lot of the timber that's being used for all sorts of woodworking in the, the eastern part of Virginia is actually coming from areas further west because much of the landscape had been cleared, but there are certainly exceptions, and, and timber coming out of the, the Great Dismal Swamp would have been one of those exceptions. Rob, you said the peat could be 30 feet deep at some places and apparently served a remarkable environmental function. Absolutely. Peat serves a real water-holding function in gardening. And its ability to hold water helps explain how the Dismal Swamp formed. It's tempting to think that the swamp just filled in. But a more accurate picture we now know with a variety of science disciplines studying the problem or the situation is that the peat started in low-lying drainages, basically streams that ran through the mostly dry Great Dismal Swamp. And then over time, those those drainages filled with peat, and it crept up the sides of hills until all the streams sort of merged under a blanket of peat, which by about three to 5,000 years ago covered the entire half million acres. And it's that environment that Atlantic white cedar is the uniquely tolerant tree species and, and does so well and helps explain the the dense monotypic stands we find of it. And so how does peat and these stands affect the environment around them? It helps us avoid climate change because the uh, peat is, of course, made of carbon. 50% of its dry weight is carbon. And so any carbon in the peat is carbon that's not in our atmosphere. And couple that with the fact that the trees that fall had they fallen in most forests, they would just decompose and their carbon would go back to the atmosphere. But that's not what happens in in places like the Great Dismal Swamp. When an Atlantic white cedar would have fallen there, it would have lasted in the peat for centuries. You've lamented that there are scientists who are deeply devoted to the survival of the Atlantic white cedar and who know so much about its history 
and its scientific properties, but that a lot of this is sort of gone as these scientists retire. That's right, Sarah. Um, in the Great Dismal Swamp, the refuge founding documents required Atlantic white cedar and other native habitats to be maintained. And now that water control structures seem to be helping the refuge raise water levels, it appears that the chance to reestablish Atlantic white cedar is, is going to be back with us. And so we wanted to start the awcnow.org website to help keep those communication lines open among researchers and, and those with experience with the ecosystem and also have a repository for the old documents that, that used to track things like, well, if you wanted to plant Atlantic white cedar, how would you do that? Um, that, that information will be lost unless there's a lot of effort put into having a place for it to reside. Remind me of how many acres there had been estimated and how many acres remain? Well, the Great Dismal Swamp is currently half a million acres, and there's a wide range of estimates for the original extent, but it could have been more than two million acres, most of which would have been Atlantic white cedar growing three or four feet apart and three or four feet across, possibly 100 feet tall. What's the extent of the white cedar population there now, would you say? Well, there are half a dozen places where stands not much bigger than your yard at home are uh, still standing. And, um, and that's down from 3,000 acres was a good estimate we had about um, 2003 when a hurricane blew those down. That's awful. Is the Atlantic white cedar a protected species? Do we do that? You know, in the United States, we have an Endangered Species Act that's federally managed. And, uh, and that was an encouraging factor. There's the Hessel's hair streak butterfly that requires Atlantic white cedar. But um, the main reason why the uh, refuge is formed to protect Atlantic white cedar is because it's a whole type of ecosystem that we lost. Well, Rob and John, thank you for sharing your insights and with good reason. Happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Rob Atkinson is a professor of biology at Christopher Newport University. John Hallman is a master cooper at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. We had studio help from Deb Farmer at WHRV. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.